uh, t- two awesome songs that bookends um, really the hope of, our, uh, of the gospel, the story of the gospel that we're going to uh, continue to talk all about tonight. Um, I uh, thoroughly have uh, enjoyed all of teaching all of John, but getting into the, um, the story um, that is the main story um, of the gospels, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus has been um, very exciting. Tonight, we're going to kind of deal with the interim uh, between the two big events. Um, we'll, we'll get right up to the resurrection, of course. Um, but we're going to begin uh, and read at the very end of chapter 19. So if you want to open your Bibles to John 19, we're going to begin in verse 38 and read through the end of that. And there's one verse in here that is so important uh, that is that we rush past because we're just trying to get to the resurrection story, which of course, that's, that's the end-all, be-all, what we've been waiting for. Um, but tonight, uh, we're going to jump into an incredible passage of Scripture, uh, specifically one single verse that blows my mind, uh, and that's saying a lot because all the Bible is so breathtaking and, and all of God's Word is so rich and so powerful. But perhaps more than any other verse, this verse just has so much uh, that, that, that um, so much symbolism and, and speaks to the, the, to the story that God has been telling since the beginning of time. Um, and after all this, if you don't believe the Bible's inspired, of course you all do. But if you don't believe the Bible's inspired, um, I, I, you know, if you don't believe that God has crafted this incredible story, more importantly, that he set it in motion, that this is history, um, that with God's hands all over it, um, I, I, you know, I, I, can't, I can't do much else if uh, this doesn't work. Um, but I recommend this passage to you tonight in tonight's message as just further proof that uh, God is in control and has woven a story that is so incredible. Um, and I don't know what else to do if uh, tonight's message uh, leaves you, you know, kind of shrugging your shoulders. Um, but I know God will keep working to persuade you, and I'll keep working to persuade you. Um, but boy, uh, you don't want to miss what he's got for what his plans are for you, and he doesn't want you to miss out on this incredible opportunity. But obviously, the climax of John's gospel is what affords us this opportunity. We just sing about it, that gives us forgiveness and gives us freedom and and gives us new life. Um, To know God, to come into a relationship with God is all possible because of what we have just read about in chapter 19 and what we're going to read about in chapter 20. Uh, The death and the resurrection of Jesus are really two sides of the same coin, and that makes sense, right? You can't have one side without the other. Um, You know, you try to figure out which one's more important. They work hand in hand. Uh, You can't have the death without the resurrection because Jesus obviously didn't stay dead. Um, And you don't have the resurrection without the cross. So the death and resurrection of Jesus are two sides of the same coin. Ask me which is more important, and I'll be on either side on you know any given day. But they both work together. Uh, without the death, you don't have forgiveness. Without resurrection, uh, you don't have deliverance. Uh, th- this is the most important sequence of events in human history. Um, so to say one's more important than the other, that's impossible. But these two events, in the sequence of events that they're a part of, is the most important sequence um, sequence in all of human history. And again, it's impossible to separate the two from each other. Uh, you can't talk about one without bringing out the other. Uh, the disciples, of course, never did. They never talked about one without also talking about the other. They brought them up in, conver- in converse with each other. Um, Jesus' death on the cross um, is why our sin has been paid for. Uh, there is no longer anything, and this is so incredible, and we should shout from here to, to, to people who should be able to hear us around the world. There is nothing that stands between anybody and God anymore because of Jesus' death on the cross. That sin is no longer standing in between you and God. There is no division. There is no wall of separation. There is no, no separation between you and God because your sin has not only been forgiven, it has been washed away. 
That's incredible, right? That, that is just too good for us. It's too rich. Uh, but to summarize what Jesus did on the cross, Paul did it in two verses that we should memorize, we should know very well. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we all know this. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what happened on the cross? Jesus died for our sin. He was made to be sin. He was perfect. We were not. Yet he became sin so that in him, those are so those four words are so important so that in him as in only in him we might become and we have been saved we who have been saved we have become the righteousness of God that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross that his work made that possible for you Paul put it in another way in Galatians 3 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Pretty simple, isn't it? We were cursed. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us as he was cursed on Calvary's tree. But again, that's just one side of the coin. And that's, so, that's too good for us to even have that side of the coin, right? Yet that set up the other side of the coin that we would not just be forgiven by God, but that we would be delivered by God, that we wouldn't just be, um, have our old washed away, but that we might have something new put in place. So again, part of that process, the gospel is more than our hearts being washed from sin, and oh, how it is that, but it's more than that. The good news is that our hearts are filled with the Spirit of God. That we aren't just forgiven of doing bad things because we would just do more bad things if something wasn't, if that bad stuff wasn't replaced with something, right? Salvation is more than just being forgiven of sin because we'll just go on and sin some more if something doesn't happen to counter that. And that's why it's good news because yes, our sin is forgiven, but it's even better. The Spirit of God moves into our hearts and He is there to stay. Now, usually I would save that sort of resolution for the end of the message, but we all know that stuff. We hear that preached here very often, so I think we all can go ahead and kind of spoil the end of the story. We've almost heard that so much that we've lost full appreciation of it. Isn't that, I think that's okay to say that we, or that's right to say that we've heard the gospel so much that we kind of are numb to these amazing truths. Um, Maybe y'all aren't, but I preach them so much sometimes I don't stop and think, wow, that's incredible enough. Uh, But what I want to do today is I want to talk about the significance of the gap between Friday at 3 p.m. and roughly 3 p.m. and Sunday at 6 a.m. Because following 3 p.m. Friday, when Jesus gave up the ghost, shortly after that, he was laid to rest. We don't know exactly the time, but it was before 6 because sundown was the Sabbath day and they had to get him in the ground and get out of the garden before then. Sometime, between, sometime around Friday, 3, 4 p.m. until Sunday at 6 a.m., I want to talk about what God was doing in that period, not where Jesus went and what was going on in the under part, the lower parts of the earth, but what the significance of that gap is and what we can learn from that gap. Because we often rush to the next part of the story, which is, of course, what we're, all, what we're looking for, but I think there's something we can learn in the interim here. Uh, it's in that gap that we see something that is so incredible that I think will leave us with a fresh sense of awe and wonder, which is good for Christians, 
if, if, you, if you don't walk out of church um, speechless sometimes, shame on the preacher for not doing his job to bring God's word. But also, I think it's, it stands to say that, you know, we didn't really focus in on what God was trying to say to us because it's good for Christians to be speechless sometimes. It's good for Christians to have that fresh sense of awe and wonder because if we don't have those pinch me moments as Christians, then something's got a little bit too normal and a little bit too, you know, you know kind of tired. And, and that's not Christianity. Christianity is, wow, open your eyes because God is so amazing. And if we aren't walking away with that kind of appreciation, we're just not looking at him um, closely and not thinking about him uh, intently. It's good for us to have these moments where we just step back and say, wow, isn't God good? More than just good. Isn't he so awesome? I mean, it's just too rich and too special for us to even deserve to know, let alone be blessed by these incredible things. So what happens directly after Jesus' death is so incredible. We often go straight to Sunday, but there's a message so intertwined with the rest of the Bible that we will skip over if we do that. So Jesus has been crucified. He has bled to death. Jesus has wrestled. He's bear-hugged death to the ground. He's buried, but he's still very much in control. Even though he's silent for the better part of two days, even though there's no record of what he said and on, that, on this side of the grave, no one knew what was going on. We know that he was very much in control even though his body, his still lifeless body, was laid in the ground. Under the ground, he was laid to rest. He was very much in control. How do we know that? Even without knowing how the story ends or what happens next, we can have that confidence because there's a theme, there's an idea that we see present throughout the scripture. And this is kind of, this has been a difficult thing for me to get uh, my arms around. I felt like God wanted me to teach on this. So I hope and pray this resonates and this comes across. If it doesn't, I tried. Um, But there's a theme and there's an idea that is present throughout all the scripture that I want us to take a moment and appreciate for just a few minutes this morning. Um, All throughout, uh, a few minutes this evening, um, I don't know what time of day it is. Uh, All throughout the Bible, we hear about how God is planting and how things grow from the things that he planted. All, All throughout the Bible, we hear about how God sows and about how he reaps. And we see this theme throughout the Bible. We see mentions and references to God being like a gardener. He plants, he waters, he grows, he tends. Of course, Jesus, back in John 15, told us that Jesus, that his father was the gardener, was the husbandman, was the vine dresser. We also see gardens as settings and backdrops from the beginning of the story to the very end of the story. I'm talking about the whole Bible, right? There are gardens on every other page, it seems, and that's not insignificant. That's on purpose, The very beginning of the story of Scripture begins in a garden, after all, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 2, the Scripture says, After God created the heavens and the earth, and after the seventh day, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And in the east there, he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So here in the very beginning, in Genesis 2, again, eight verses in, we have God tell us that he planted a garden, and he put 
Adam there, and of course Eve with him. He put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave Adam, and Eve, gave Adam a job to work the garden, keep the garden, take care of the garden. There's these two important trees in the garden. The tree of life is what preserves you. It's what, it's what promises you eternal life. That tree of knowledge of good and evil, you should not touch it because you should leave that to God and you should stay pure and innocent and in his hands and trust him to take care of all that stuff and trust him to guide you in every step. Don't try to become God. You have a God. He's good at doing what he's done. He just made you after all. Uh, of course, uh, that didn't work out so well for Adam and Eve. They didn't listen to that. Uh, we know how that story would go. But God began with a garden, and we see that Jesus often is in a garden. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane over and over again in the Gospels. Um, he humbles himself. He accepts his fate on the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. And according to John, the hillside called Golgotha, we call it Calvary, was near a garden. Now, we often think about Calvary as being this desolate place, dry, and you know, we see pictures of it, and it's just you know, lightning bolts and darkness. But John tells us that though it was called the place of the skull because of some image that it seemed to, put to bear resemblance of, it was not a dry and desolate place at all. It was a fertile garden. In fact, there was a garden tomb nearby. So when Jesus was taken off the cross, rather than being burnt in the valley of Gehenna like most crucified victims were, to be forgotten and never remembered again, to have their bodies and remains you know, burn up, that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea put in a bid for the body to take him and put him in Joseph's tomb to give him a proper burial, because they didn't expect to see him again, but they wanted him to have a dignified end, unlike what he had just suffered on the cross. And it's into that story uh, that I want us to jump into tonight. And I want us to hear one specific verse. Um, I think you can pick it up as we read these few verses uh, about Jesus' burial. Verse 38 of chapter 19. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the customs of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. I hope that I can make, I can bring to the surface the gravity of this verse. We see this promise of hope built in to this text, and, and, and John had to be smiling from ear to ear when he wrote verse 41. Near the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And again, it just continues to come back to the story, doesn't it? The Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and now this garden near Golgotha. In the garden was a new tomb. In the garden was a tomb that had not been used yet, designated for Joseph and his family at some point in the future, but someone else needed it before Joseph, in which no one had yet been laid. Jesus is buried in a garden, in untilled ground. Do you see what the Bible is foreshadowing here? 
ground that had not been tilled, ground that had not been used to plant something in. Jesus is buried in a garden. I want to show you something that Jesus said back in John 12, verse 24, that foreshadowed this in a big way. Jesus, back in John 12, said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Now, when he's talking about dies, he's saying planted, right? He's saying it dies because you don't see it anymore. To you, it's gone. You'll never see it again. But he's being, you know, coy. Of course, you know what happens when you plant a seed in the ground. It's going to sprout up, and it won't look like the seed, but it's better off when it comes up because it bears fruit, because it's a plant. But Jesus is addressing his own future. Yes, I know it's sad when you plant something so as to never see it again, but the end result is far better. And Jesus uses this grain and this seed analogy because, of course, you plant a seed. What else is a seed for? Just because God buries something doesn't mean he's done with it, is what Jesus is saying. Just because God puts something in the ground, something that we would suggest is ending it, burying it, just because God buries something doesn't mean he's done with it. He may actually mean to prepare for something. He may actually be preparing something bigger and better than before. And if you think about it, this doesn't really require a great leap of faith. It's just acting off and rooted in this law of sowing and reaping, planting and growing. You don't have to have a lot of faith to put a seed in the ground, do you? Because you know if you follow the law, if you follow the, 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 you know, the proper protocol and you water it and you put it in the right ground, you dig it the right way and you bury it the right way, if you plant a seed, it's going to sprout because that's the law of sowing and reaping. It's not, i got to have a lot of faith. It's, I know when I plant something, something's going to come up. That's a law that God has put into motion. That's called, you know, that's, that's, that's nature, right? What God has planted, what God had planted was the seeds for a brand new movement. A grand and spectacular new way of life. God had buried the old way of humanity. It's sin that leads to brokenness. God himself absorbed and took on that vile and sinful nature of humanity. Jesus bore it on the cross and it killed him. And his body was laid in the ground a picture of the old man the result of adam's fall jesus was buried and in him all of adam's descendants all of sin past present and future all of adam's sin in christ was buried and god told him god had told the world that he would redeem adam's curse and in this moment he was doing that In the Garden of Edom, where Adam was placed, God told him that nothing was off limits except one tree. Of course, that's the very tree they ate from, right? Think about this, though. One tree ended Adam's life, spiritually speaking, but ended his life in the garden. One tree ended Adam's life, cursing us all. Another tree ended Jesus' life, saving us all. Jesus was buried, and with him all of Adam's sin. Yet this would be the beginning of a brand new era of humanity, a brand new kind of humanity. Where there is no male, female, no rich, no poor, no Greek, nor Jew, but 
Christian would be a brand new identity. Not a label, but a new creature would come from something that God planted in that garden. It puts into new perspective the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 13 when he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all. The garden plants and becomes a tree. There's that tree again. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So God said, Jesus said this kingdom is like a seed planted and no one gives any attention to it no one expects much out of it but when it sprouts it will be the largest of all trees in all of creation greater than any garden in its past i think this application i think the application that we can pull from is number one obviously god had a plan and boy did he pull it off a sequence of events that changed history and changed humanity. Adam sinned. Jesus came and took on Adam's sin, was buried in a garden, and Jesus rose back to life. And his new life, his resurrection life, would impact all that believe. So that's the big theological takeaway that we come from this, that we get from this. But there's something else we can get from this in a, very more, in a more practical way, more pressing way for here and now. Because we, we know all that other stuff. We should never confuse preparation for devastation. That's what we hear. That's what I think we learn from this interim between the cross and the resurrection. Jesus planted in a garden tomb in ground that had not yet been used, in a tomb that had not been, yet been used. Jesus' body was buried, yet it was really preparation. We can walk away from this story as Christians with this application. We we don't have to confuse, and we should never confuse, preparation for devastation. As in, there are seasons of your life when, when things are devastating, when things fall apart, where things get buried. You hear me? Where things are as if they are never coming back, or never will be the same. But we should never confuse a garden for a grave. Both of them involve digging and both of them involve burying. But most of us would say graves don't get dug up. But gardens, they bring out life. And maybe what God is doing in all this is redefining what graveyards mean. I think that's really part of the whole thing, isn't it? Because from now on, we understand that graveyards are not the end either, right? We have this new lens to look at them through. They're gardens. Jesus wasn't taken to a graveyard when he died. He was taken to a garden. And don't you see how just big that is? See the big picture? We take this as a reminder that we don't have to fear, worry, or ever wonder if death is the end. Because it's not. They may lay our bodies in graveyards, but as far as we're concerned, that's a garden. Because we're not staying there. Jesus said in John 11 to the brokenhearted family of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, and that means there is going to be death, unless he returns and rapture takes us, but he's talking to a world that was far away from that, and we don't know how close it is for us. But until he returns, we're going to die. But though we die, we will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, Jesus says, shall never die. 
And he says to you and me, do you believe that? And because of what we just read in John, we can say or should say, yes, I believe that. Because Jesus was not put in a grave, he was put in a garden. He didn't stay there. He rose up just like we know is our future. Bury us and walk away from us all you want and doubt that we will ever see us again, but God has something else to say about that. Christians, our bodies are not laid to rest in graves. They're laid in gardens. When we die, we have nothing but life to look forward to. But to make this even more practical, there's nothing that God's people cannot come back from. Nothing. This is where a lot of us as Christians, we just say, you know, our flesh comes up and our doubting Thomas nature comes up and says, I don't know about that, Justin. Nothing that God's people can't come back from. I don't know if I can say that. I don't know if I agree with you on that. And I think that's our nature. That's part of something that we all struggle with. Sometimes the hardest part is trusting God amidst the loss. Holding on to hope until the sun comes back up. We don't know how long it's going to be between Friday and Sunday. For us, it might be years. They didn't think that Sunday was ever coming like it came. The hardest part is trusting God when it's still dark. Amidst the loss, from Friday's 3 p.m. to Sunday's 6 a.m., however long that is in our stories, the hardest part is holding on to hope until something changes. For us, when we're in the waiting period, when we're in the line, in bet- we're in the in-between, what we have to do is entrust whatever has ended or whatever we've lost into God's hands. Does that make sense? That we might can't change what just happened. We probably can't. We may have, in some ways, just saw a lot of things buried in our life. Losses, setbacks, defeats that we can't undo. But here's the thing. We can't allow the devil to claim those as victories for him. And most of us do. Most of us, when we lose things and we have setbacks and we have hardships, we just cross our arms and we hold our heads down and think, well, there's nothing undoing that. And though we can't undo it, we just give him that victory and we give him that moment over us and we just assume that that can't be redeemed and something good can't come out of that. When Jesus told us, unless it's buried and unless it dies, you'll never see what God intends to come from it. Unless it's put in a garden, you won't see the fruit. So what if? What if we could reclaim those losses, those setbacks, and those defeats as seeds for something God can take, use, and redeem? What if we had that mentality and we took that approach with every loss and setback and defeat we face? Not as if we can say to God, here's what I want you to do or give it back to me or double it in return. But no, God, I understand that these losses, these setbacks, these defeats, they may be devastating to me, but I believe that you are sovereign, you are in control, and you can reclaim these things and you can use these things, you can redeem these things, so I'm going to put a seed of faith in the ground alongside this graveyard that I've just seen a lot of my good things go to, and I'm going to trust that something that's coming is better than what just just happened and what's just passed 
What if we started sowing seeds of faith to go alongside, work alongside the things that we once counted as losses? What if instead of being overcome with defeat when something is lost, when we fall behind, when we are overcome, what if we went to God and we said to God, for whatever reason you took this, for whatever reason your will was to take away, blessed be your name, you gave it and you took it. But I know the resurrection promise teaches me that you don't take in vain just like you don't give in vain. God, I know you don't sow in vain. The seed you just planted, the things you just took, and the things I just lost, you did not sow them in vain. You don't bury things in graveyards. You plant them in gardens. So God, I want to come alongside this, and instead of being broken and disheveled and defeated, I'm going to have faith that what's going to happen next is better than what I just suffered. And I'm not going to let the devil define this moment as defeat, but I'm going to let you redefine it and reclaim it as some kind of victory. See, that's really what Christianity is all about. Finding that spirit, finding that ability to always rise back up and not reject what just happened, not act as if it didn't happen, but accept it as God's will and say to God, okay, God, I know that your plan was different than mine. And yes, I just lost something, but what are you trying to do with this moment? See, a lot of us, we just get mad. We get bitter. We get broken. And we're tempted to try to just pray it to undo it. But the more spiritual thing is to pray about what God wants to do with what just happened, with the seeds he just planted. All throughout the Bible, we see things like this. Solomon, back in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, says to us, In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. He's not talking about giving money to somebody on TV either. No, people do that. He's saying, hey, you do, whatever you just suffered, and y'all have read Ecclesiastes, if you hadn't, don't do it tonight because it's kind of depressing outside. It might make you feel worse. Ecclesiastes is Solomon coming to terms with the fact that life is short and life is hard. At the end of the book, he's thinking, you know what? I don't know if I really want to do this again. He's, very, he's at a very low place. It's not the most positive book. But in this chapter, he comes to the conclusion, who knows what God's going to do with the things that we might think are bad or defeats or losses but what if God actually is doing something that we don't understand? So you, we, in the morning should sow our seed of faith and say, God, I don't know what you're doing, and I don't know if I even agree with what you're doing, but I know you're doing it, and I can't stop you. So I'm putting my faith with these seeds in the ground, and I believe that what I might have lost, you're going to turn into something better. Because here's the thing, we suffer a lot of things in this life, and we're going to suffer a lot of things in this life, because this world has fallen, and it's definitely not for us. And the enemy loves to see God's people just give up and give in. Yet God says, the Bible says, sow a seed of faith. And at evening, you will hold your hand out and see that God had a reason for it. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says that this is the point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. As in, if we don't expect God, if we don't go to God and say, God, what are you doing with this? We won't see what he's doing. That simple. Both of these teach us 
to go to God by faith amidst whatever we've lost, pray, anticipate, and expect him to work something better for us and before us than whatever the loss might be that's behind us. I think this is one of the most practical ways that we can understand the resurrection promise of Jesus. I think this can be a difference maker in our lives because we will begin to expect and look for God to work out things that we otherwise would give up on. This can change our spirits and increase our confidence. This isn't about being optimistic versus being pessimistic. This is about being resilient and about being determined, about never giving up, about having confidence in God. Because here's, here's the short of it. For a Christian to accept defeat and not have confidence that God can redeem anything. For a Christian to say, you know what? Friday, 3 p.m., it's over, Rover. Nothing good's going to happen from this. Nothing good can't happen from this. We know that that's not the case because we've already seen what happens on Sunday at 6. So when we face things in life and we see things get buried and things get taken away, we should not accept defeat or have no confidence that God can redeem and do something out of that because that betrays our identity. You understand that? It betrays our origin story. It mocks our origin story because what's our origin story? Jesus was buried. He was planted in a garden and he did not stay in that garden. He rose again. So when we accept defeat and we don't expect God to work something out of that, those ashes, we're mocking our origin story. You know what the Bible says about mocking God, don't you? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. As in, if we just give up, if we don't act as if the God that we serve is a resurrecting God, then we will just sow in our flesh and we'll reap corruption. As in, we'll always be stumbling and rumbling, tumbling down the mountain. And we will always be getting beat up and losing confidence and losing faith. And the devil will gloat over us and will have control over us. Yet if we sow in the Spirit, we will reap everlasting life. As in, we will know that God is in control and take everything away from us. And God is still planning something bigger and better. Maybe not materialistically, but what he's got for us is far better. That's the story of Job, isn't it? He lost everything, yet he did not give up. Because what did he say? I know that my Redeemer lives. Do you know? We give up a lot. But Paul reminds us and encourages us here in Galatians 6, verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. But what happens when we give up? We don't reap. Not that there's not plenty in the ground. There's plenty that's been buried. But we don't sow faith along with it. We miss what God can do with even the setbacks of this life. Before we leave, I want to read the first 10 verses of John 20. And I want to compare two different reactions to what they see in the grave. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter, the other disciple whom Jesus loved, John, 
said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. He, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes, linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, went into the tomb, and saw the linen cloths lying there, the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scriptures that he, might, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Everything is turned upside down, yet Peter and John, John runs to the tomb ahead of Peter. They get to the tomb. John sees the empty tomb, and he believes that God has done it again. Or in this instance, he's done it. He's setting a brand new movement in motion. Peter doesn't know what to think. So I want to ask you, when everything is turned upside down, when a lot of things fall by the wayside and life beats us up, are you a Peter or a John? Do you think, do you, do you see, should say, do you see a setback in a graveyard? Or do you see a garden and a comeback? When you see the losses, when you see the aftermath of what just happened, do you see setbacks in a graveyard that means the end? Or do you see a garden and a comeback that means the best is yet to come? John ran to the tomb because he had already sown a seed of faith, expecting God to turn this into a comeback of a lifetime. Sometimes we dread what's next, talk ourselves out of even showing up to see what might be around the corner. Before we even get to Monday, we've already accepted Monday's going to be bad. The devil stands over us, gloating and mocking that the promise that Jesus made into a reality 2,000 years ago is void in our lives. Church, this week, against all that might discourage us and all that might fight against you, can you and will you commit to showing up with a bright and hopeful attitude, with a confident and resilient spirit? What a difference we might make in somebody's life. What a difference we might make in our world if we wouldn't just let things sail down the river as if they've been lost and if it's a lost cause. What if we started coupling those seeds with prayers, expecting resurrection? Satan wants us to accept that every day, especially the ones after hardships and losses, he wants us to see nothing but graveyards. But God, since the beginning, has been picking us up and placing us in gardens, which means there's something, there's always something growing. Always something good about to happen, even from, especially from, the ashes of defeat. Our Christian hope was born in a graveyard that was actually a garden. So we should be living examples every day that no loss, no setback, no defeat means the end. But it means that God is getting ready to do something better than ever before. Are we those kind of examples to our world? Are we those kind of testimonies to our world? Do we expect resurrection? John did. 
Peter, not so much. Which one are you? What do you expect tomorrow? Christians should expect the best. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this encouraging but also challenging message. God, I know I can be the most pessimistic person and I can be so easy to accept defeat. And I realize what happens when I do that. I don't pray for you to work amidst the loss. Lord, when things are going my way, I go to you and I say, God, continue this. Help me make the most of this. Help me take advantage of this. But when things get bad, I either pray for you to change it or I just accept it. But rarely do I ever go and say, God, you've buried these things. You've planted these things. What do you will that would come out of these things? What is your future plan from the ashes of my plans? Father, thank you for this reminder that Christians come from this place of hope, this place of resilience, this place of resurrection. So God, I pray that you might would use us to change our world this week, to change somebody's life this week, change our lives this week, that we might could plant seeds of faith in the gardens all around us, that we might see that you're working. Even amidst our losses, you are, plant, you are working and watering and preparing for something better. God, encourage your people with this word, equip us with this truth, and give us this kind of faith. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.